Thank you. It's nice to see familiar faces in the audience. So I haven't done a two-part lecture series before, so this is interesting. Uh, in my family, we call this a twofer, sort of two for the price of one. Um, but I hope that I can, by the end of this, show you how the relatively extensive empirical work that I described yesterday really fits in to the broader problem I'm trying to address here. So I'm going to try to tackle what I think are two interrelated questions, each of which are huge. And of course, it's the, the hubris involved in trying to treat these in such a brief period of time. But you'll have to forgive me for that. So the first is the problems and new approaches towards the issues of psychiatric nosology. I have been, as we say in the United States, a DSM warrior. That means that I have spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours on phone calls and in conferences, now spanning my first meeting with Bob Spitzer in about 1984, involvement in DSM-3R, DSM-4, and being in the eye of the storm of DSM-5. And I'm going to talk about an area that, that I, at least for me, is applied philosophy of science trying to give some conceptual structure to what we are about in this every 10 to 15 year self-flogging exercise that knows that, at least in the, on my side of the Atlantic, we go through and we revise DSM. Uh, in Switzerland, you folks do something similar in the World Health Organization. And, and how do we even begin to structure what we might be doing? And that's the concept of epistemic iteration. And then, as if that's not a small enough topic to look at, I'm going to do, and then here the title is really quite grandiose, and I apologize for that, is really what is the structure of psychiatric science? And I have really two underlying purposes here as well. I'm going to try to be descriptive, because I'm going to actually show a little empirical study of trying to get a sense, if you go through leading psychiatric and psychology journals, what's the nature of the pattern and distribution of the, of the studies that we find? What do they treat? How often are they within versus cross levels? And then I will switch to, again, an unapologetically proscriptive stru uh, structure about the way of my vision of what will be necessary to move this kind of giant corpus of, of psychiatric and psychological work forward in time. So it's a pretty broad agenda. Before we do that, I want to take some time to try to historically contextualize. And if there's anything that I've been reading in more actively over the last three or four months, rather than philosophy of science, which I, as my wife will tell you, am addicted to, and Amazon is terribly seductive. It's so bloody easy to order books that I can only read them as fast as I can order them, but I have a whole pile. Um, is to actually talk more about the historical contextualization of where we are within the history of what of how we have thought about diagnoses in medicine in general, I have found this to be very useful in sort of conceptualizing. And I will give you only the, the quickest of sketches, but I wanted to start with, with something that I thought was particularly appropriate, and that's this book. This happens to be my copy of uh, The Anatomy of Melancholy. I hope it comes through reasonably clearly here. You can tell that the publication date is 1624. The Anatomy, the anatomy of Melancholy, what is it with all the kinds causes, symptoms, prognostic, and several cures of it in three main partitions. And I want to use this as an example of how did Burton think about, in this particular institution, the causes of this major syndrome that I have been preoccupied with through my professional life. And I showed you all these fancy, lovely color diagrams just uh, yesterday about this. How would uh, Burton have done this? So. Uh, you begin, this is, he, he gives an outline in graphical form um, of the uh, causes, and I will show you this part right here. So there are two main divisions, and again, I have to step out here so I can read it myself. This is the causes, 
it begins with impulses, sins, concupiscence. Lovely word that rolls off the tongue. And then this is instrumental, which includes intemperance and all second causes. So I'm going to really go through quickly the set of causes that Burton postulated for major depression. So let's go to this next page, and we can see that there are supernatural causes. So this is God and the evil, and then this is the devil, um, and then this is magicians, witches, and others. This is primarily the stars, as in aphorisms, signs, uh, metroscopy, chiromancy. Okay? Then we have congenital, which includes old age, okay? and <laughs> temperament, what we will call personality, and then parents, it being an hereditary disease. So he's kind of got a fairly long list. And then let's keep going with the outward causes, uh, which includes nurses and education, terrors, affrights, um, loss of liberty, poverty and want, all possible accidents, death of friends, and then inward, in which the body is weakened, the malady is cured, etc., of particular distempers, of brain, heart, spleen, liver, pylorus, stomach, etc. And then we have the three kinds, and I'll, I will end this eventually, of head melancholy. And here we have innate humor, uh, a hot brain, corrupt blood in the brain, excess of venery or defect, agues, diseases, um, and fumes arising from the stomach. Okay? And then we have the heat of the sun, a blow to the head, overmuch hot wine, spices, garlics, hot baths, overmuch waking. Uh, solitariness, overmuch study, so be careful, professors. Uh, relevant nature, passions, perturbations. Um, and then we have defaults of spleen, hemorrhoids, hemorrhoids uh, other problems with evacuation, liver distemper, diet suppression, and one more, and I'll be done with this momentarily. Uh, we have here bread, coarse black bread, drinks, uh, uh, water unclean, um, filth, all kinds of filth, hard filth, herbs, cabbage, Garlic, because we're aware of garlic, all roots, raw fruits, preparing, drilling, disorders of eating, etc. So you get the point. So actually, this is a very long list. And imagine if we were to do a path diagram of all these possible causes, how they would relate. Now, what, what is the point of this? It is somewhat humorous. And by the way, it's a fascinating book to read. And uh, it is absolutely encyclopedic. Um, it's rather hard to read from cover to cover. I can't say I've quite done that, but I've read large parts of it, and it's, uh, it contains quite a bit of wisdom, as well as a very broad view of the etiology of major depression. So the, it, the, I do this to illustrate, and this is a point that many have made. German Berrios is really sort of my, uh, my, my main source if I want to turn to someone about the history of psychiatric illness and the history of medical illness. And basically, he and others have written that more or less before the middle of the 19th century, we barely had the idea that disorders have etiologies as the way we understood them. They had a series of these possible causes, but you look at them, there are all these long lists of every possible category across all ranges with the idea that there was an underlying etiology that you're tapping into was actually really quite foreign. So the transformative experience of modern medicine was really the discovery of bacteria in the mid to late 19th century. And then we move from a point of lists of things like this to this stunning, and it must have been one of the most exciting periods in the history of medicine when Pasteur and Koch, one after the other, cholera, plague, tuberculosis, uh, diphtheria, one after the other of these great complex diseases, killers, including 
uh, disorders like tertiary syphilis, tuberculosis was thought to be genetic, it was thought to be social, there were all these huge debates, and all of a sudden we had these hard etiologies of disorders. In my view, and this is supported by scholars, you know, much more profoundly learned than me, that the idea of hard reductionist models in biomedicine as a whole really stemmed from this period of what would many would regard as the most exciting period in the history of biomedicine. As we made more difference in the problems of life, because of course many of these very quickly led to immunizations and, and much of the drive for uh, uh, sanitation and others come out of this overall period. And of course, it had a tremendous impact on the then nascent field of, um, of psychiatry. I would recommend for those of you interested, this lovely book by Carter, The Rise of Causal Concepts of Disease, that really explored this in more detail. <coughs> this set off within medicine in general, and of course within psychiatry, what I would describe as a reductionist feeding frenzy. That is, to be the current best academic doctor, you wanted to grab single causes for diseases because that is what was trumpeted by the then dominant laboratory-based models. Remember, as we move from the sort of French hospital-based school of medicine in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, scientific medicine shifted dramatically into the German model where the lab was, was the goal and bacteria was the goal of that, and we were gonna get single causes of diseases. This was the legitimate approach. This was the high prestige approach. And remember, modern neuropsychiatry really grew up almost entirely in Germany in the last third of the uh, 19th century and the first 20 years of the, of the 20th century. And psychiatry, then a nascent discipline, and as always a low prestige medical discipline, we wanted to out you know, uh, uh, formal etiology others. And so we, of course, were very strongly urged to find single etiologic theories to show that our disorders were really legitimate and they could stand up to, to plague or pneumonia as a model. So my box score of how that process is done is actually pretty negative. So actually this one I created, but roughly we have one overwhelming success story. Bale began actually in front of Escoro in the 1820s to first say, you know, I've got this group of patients, they seem to they get neurologic symptoms earlier, they die faster than the other insane people, and by the way, when you open up their brains, they had no histopathology then. I see that their brains are somewhat shrunken and they're inflamed, and that of course was the very first description of what we now call tertiary syphilis. You fast forward to 1913 when Noguchi definitively identified the treponin pallidum, and Kreplin was really key. So this is the one time when we've taken what in the 19th century was a classic Neuro, neuropsychiatric disorder, some estimates of filling 30% of all the hospital beds in Western Europe, and showed that it had a single etiology. But let's take the other three. I, I put in pellagra, but it's actually false, because pellagra was never honestly considered to be a major psychiatric disorder. So from my perspective, we have three major historical iterations where we tried running up the ramp post to say this is the single etiologies and we're going to be like real doctors and we're going to discover disorders that have single heart etiologies. And the first of that is, of course, with neuropathology. And the first person to do that was when Kreplin set up his institute. The first time his lifelong ambition was to have this integrated research institute funded in Munich. He hired this young psychiatrist neuropathologist by the name of Louis Alzheimer. And Alzheimer's job was to do all the pathology on every person who died in the nearby psychiatric hospital with the expectation that the kinds of neuropathological findings that were coming out of other classes of degenerative neurological disorders in the late 19th century would be found for psychiatry, particularly dementia precox, and of course that failed. There was a series of publications, a little bit of nonspecific gliosis there, a little bit of shrinkage, but there was never, and to this date, no specific neuropathology of schizophrenia. 
the next story, which occurred right around the time that I entered into psychiatry, was with the first histofluorescence studies of the monoamines. Remember? norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine. A few of you may have as much white hair as I do can remember, but it's embarrassing to say, when I was a first-year resident at a distinguished psychiatric institution, Yale University, as a resident, I was really taught one synapse psychiatry, which we had the presynaptic neuron and the postsynaptic neuron, and too much dopamine caused schizophrenia, and too little caused uh, depression, and too much. And uh, it's, I mean, it's complete bullshit. Um, <laughs> And we should have known it then. I, you know, that's why I bailed out of that research fairly soon. But that was, in my view, and I've written a long history of the dopamine hypothesis of schizophrenia, it was really self-delusion. And what, what drove that? Well, it's not an accident that about three years before this all hit, Hornikevich did the first neuropathology showing that Parkinson's disease had clear deterioration in the basal ganglia. It was due to dopamine and psychiatry. You know, we wanted to get away from psychoanalysis. We wanted to be real scientists. We sort of rushed into the breach, and now the monoamines are going to explain everything in a single way. And then, of course, I have lived through the fervent phase where Mendelian genetics. So in addition to bacteria, the other paradigmatic single-cause disorders in the medical lexicon are Mendelian disorders, where really most of what you need to know are the mutations that occur at a base pair level. And I remember vividly at that point when I was beginning to do work myself, I would travel around and give grand rounds, and they'd put me up with a 34-year-old assistant professor who had his three pedigrees of bipolar illness, and he was, and he was telling me he was going to find the gene, and he was about ready to buy his tickets to Stockholm, and you know, everything was just going to be a few moments away, and we are going to have this linkage. It was the same self-delusion of us, again, wanting to take very complex disorders and hoping, as that German model, the bacteriological, the Mendelian model had proposed, would work in these event failures. So I do think that that perspective is actually helpful. You know, it is psychologically understandable. We want to be a legitimate medical discipline. We want to be proud of the science to find these kind of causes. I just think that that's a misperception of the way reality really works. And at some point, we really have to recognize that. And that's sort of how this relates to my broader theme. Okay, so that's really done with the historical interlude. Um, I think I'm going to skip that. So, so I just what I wanted to show you is epidemiology, by the way, has gone through the same process. So I've also been reading the history of epidemiology. Of course, it began by studying single-cause epidemics. Then somebody more or less realized, well, you know, when plague or diphtheria sweeps through, a lot of people get ill, but some don't. And so we have to worry about these concepts of differential resistance. The general model there was seed and soil models. But then, with the start of the Framingham study, the beginnings of concepts of risk factors, these ideas of webs of causation, that now epidemiology has moved that most of the chronic diseases, and if psychiatric disorders are anything, the vast majority of the chronic, are highly multifactorial. So that epidemiology itself has grown into realizing that if you're going to understand things like hypertension and coronary artery disease and type 2 diabetes and obesity, single causes don't make it. We really have to think about how we both develop, measure, integrate, uh, conceptually, statistically complex webs of causation. Uh, in fact, they tend to use this uh, particular word of webs. Um, so that's being very well, well recognized. And I just sort of went through, I spent a, an hour on the web trying to find epidemiologic models, particularly looking at coronary artery disease, and you come up with models like this. So the idea in epidemiology has well recognized that many of the conditions we have are multi-causal, and you get pretty diagrams like this. The content of this is not at all important, or complex things like this. So this is really where modern epidemiology and biomedicine of complex diseases are. So I would ask you as a thought experiment, if we get this level of complexity, 
with the control of circulation and clotting in a coronary artery, those past three were for coronary artery disease, could we possibly imagine that the etiology of psychiatric disorders would be simpler? Uh, and of course, it is possible that there would be single causes, but I ask you really to step back and look at the overall plausibility. Think about our end organ. The heart, arteries are marvelous, but they are not built to learn like the mind-brain system is. They're not capable of higher cognitive functions. They're not capable of self-reflection. At the level of biology, well, coronary arteries and, and, and uh, clotting cascades and cholesterol synthesis are all complicated. They, of course, are dwarfed by the complexity of the mind-brain system. So I think just from the a priori idea, that we're going to expect we get these single, really robust causes that blast through this complexity, I begin from the skeptical position that that's just simply unlikely. Okay. So what this really raises, and this will come up again and again in this talk and hopefully the discussion after, is whether the multifactorial nature of what we know now about psychiatric disorders is a result of ignorance. So are there major causes? Are we going to find more treponine pallidum? Are we going to find other kinds of psychiatric disorders that we have been ignorant about where we have these single robust causes? Or is the multifactorial nature of these disorders an inherent property of the syndromes themselves? Okay? And I've debated this off and off. Of course, you can't predict the future of science. My intuitions much favor the latter position. So we'll sort of take that as given. And now let's go on to the main topic. Okay, so I first want to talk about this paper. I think this was 2012, and this is the first part of my talk will be, as I said, about psychiatric nosology. Uh, this had a very simple origin, uh, which is that I, and I, I talked a little bit about this yesterday, I got tired of being mostly at psychiatric genetics congresses, and I would see young individuals, usually molecular geneticists, occasionally young psychiatrists, and at that point, the sense of pride of these early molecular geneticists, they were going to solve these problems. It was just around the corner, give them another pedigree size, and when the, when the cost of genotyping would drop, all these psychiatric problems would dissolve away with the insights of molecular genetics. But the basic concept was, well, just wait till we make this particular advance in imaging or genetics, then we'll get at the heart of these disorders, and we'll have the real diseases, and we can get rid of all this sort of DSM bullshit. You know, we're going to see, give us the science, and all these disorders are just going to fall out in a natural way. So what, what they were articulating is the desire for our diagnoses to be based on etiologies. The RDOC, those of you who are familiar with the NIMH initiative, research diagnostic um, uh, criteria here, the implicit claim is about the right level. So what I wanted to do in this project is a little experiment about if we wanted to say that psychiatric disorders could have clear etiologic levels, how would we figure out the right level of explanation to apply. Okay? The metaphor is roughly this. That is that there are some conditions where the way the world is structured is like an hourglass, in which there's one little narrow point where you can grab that, and that information at that narrow point gives you most of the etiologic factors that you want for a disease. And of course, the obvious example would be Mendelian disorders, that once you know the kinds of base pair substitutions that arise out of classic Mendelian disorders, there are a few other things to understand, but the vast majority of that information will come from that, as opposed to the idea that there is no hourglass and that instead you have these steps of information and you can't get at everything you want to know from a single overall perspective. That's the overall contrast that I'm trying to make. So the point is then levels of explanation. I can skip through this. 
so if you get psychiatrist in a room of a diverse orientation and they say ok our job is to try to find the etiology of psychiatric disorders tell me what's the right level for us to address them and what you would get is a profusion of possible responses and this is a small example neuropathology intrapsychic mechanisms neurochemistry molecular genetics molecular neuroscience systems neuroscience cognitive neuroscience latent genetic factors temperament environmental stressors family processes social cultural processes uh, there would be advocates within our areas that each would claim that the essence of psychiatric disorders could be understood from this single perspective so um as I mentioned, there could be a single etiology spirochete-like. I want, now want to look in a detailed way at how well this model might work. Uh, that is grabbing a single form of explanation and seeing whether it can explain everything we want to know about a psychiatric disorder. So what I set up is I looked through the philosophy of science literature and I set up criteria for what we want for a good scientific explanation. Kuhn writes about this, Larry Lawton writes about this, many, many others, and there's nothing particularly complete about that, and in fact I will spend very little time about this. I simply decided I was going to look for patterns of explanation that were strong, actually they had important etiologic impact, they, we had good confidence that it was causal and not correlative, that it tended to be generalizable, it wasn't only true in one particular environment, but it was broadly uh, applicable, it was specific to the disorder and not very broad, I could manipulate it and hence it had therapeutic potential, it was proximal in a causal chain, and it really was generative because it could help with a research program. So that was sort of the, the way I set this project up. And then I said, well, let's give these theory a dry run by looking at the cystic fibrosis gene which I would argue is kind of the classic place within medicine where you can grab an explanation and how well does that work at being the place at which you want to understand the etiology of the disorder. And if we see that was true, then I want to do a dry run with alcohol use disorders or alcohol dependence and see how well it worked. And here, this is the entire result of the project as well summarized here. So if you take the uh, variance uh, at the cystic fibrosis tram transmembrane conductance regulator gene, this one, what you find is that, of course, those are immensely strong risk factors. Their causal role is unambiguous. It's absolutely generalizable. You'll get that from cystic fibrosis if you live in the Aleutian Islands or in Antarctica or in any other possible environment. It really doesn't matter. Uh, it's very specific. They don't cause any other single disease. Manipulable is a little harder. There's been gene therapies, trying to correct them, trying to put in uh, proper mutations. That's been a little more difficult. It's very proximal. You can understand the physiology from this. And uh, it's very generative because all kinds of research programs are already going from this. So, so for this particular example, as I expected, this is the bottleneck. This is the sort of point where we get a tremendous causal power from one scientific level. Well, let's look at alcohol dependence. So here we've got latent genetic risk. I've done a bunch of these twin studies myself. It's certainly strong. It's got a causal role. It's not very generalizable. It's not specific. Turns out that these latent genetic risks predispose to crime. They predispose to drug abuse. It's not specific to alcohol. They, we can't manipulate them at all. They're very distal on the process, and they're latent. They're not even, you can't measure the genes themselves. We can look at one really well-understood genetic variant, which is the ALDH receptor that, that causes the flushing reaction in East Asians. Uh, and what you find is it's really strong, it's really causal, but it's not generalizable. That's not a variant that actually segregates in non-Asian populations. I'm not going to go through this in all detail, but you can see that I tracked the major other kinds of risk factors, and not a single one of them was anything like 
for cystic fibrosis. It was good in certain areas and not good in others. Impulsivity is a great predictor, but it's completely nonspecific. Impulsivity predicts all kinds of other things. So the point here is that while for cystic fibrosis, we have a single clear level of etiology, for this kind of disorder, we basically have a hodgepodge. That we have risk factors that are good in this area, but not that. This one is good in that one and not this. So do we have or could we agree as a discipline and say, all right, we're going to figure out an etiologic level to define these disorders that's going to be anything like what DNA is for Mendelian disorders? And I think the answer to this exercise is no. And it's not because we're stupid or that our science is terrifically bad. I think the evidence simply suggests that the risk factors are sprinkled across multiple areas, and they don't coalesce at one particular level of science that we can grab. And I can assure you that if we were to do this for other disorders, for major depression and others, the answer you get is very much the same. So that's really the outcome of this project. So I was simply saying, you know, everybody goes around, we want etiologic disorders only if our science gets mature. We want to get rid of all this descriptive psychiatry. It's around the corner. I actually think this is really pretty sobering because, in fact, if you want etiologic diagnoses, it's not at all clear what level, and is there a level at which we can agree upon? Because if you, if, you want, if you say etiologic and you want neurochemistry, and I say etiological and I want neuropsychology, and someone else says etiologic but I want genetic or I want brain anatomy, it's just going to be a mess. Um, and the science doesn't lead us in an unambiguous way to one level. That's the point. Okay, thanks for that. All right, so now I want to switch to a very different topic. And this is my contributions to thinking in a process way about what can we do in the process of psychiatric nosology to try to improve the process toward getting better and better indices or descriptions of psychiatric diagnoses. Let me start with this lovely quote. As evident from the history of science, a mature science's progress may be interpreted as asymptotic coming closer and closer to the way the world really is. Here are the two major papers that I've written on this, although Hasek Chang's book is also quite important. So, epistemic iteration originates in mathematics as a computational method when using available data generates a series of increasingly accurate estimates of a desired parameter. All of my model fitting, the vast majority of model fitting that other people use, use an iterative mathematical process. In a properly working iterative system, mathematically speaking, each estimate improves upon its predecessor so that with sufficient number of iterations, the process will asymptote to the stable and accurate parameter estimates. That's how it should work. Iteration, when well done, and there's a variety of caveats, and I'll go through these, should be robust. But given key features that the likelihood surface over which it works is stable, you can start the iteration in many different places, and they'll always converge toward a single solution. So it's a very generic, potentially powerful tool. And I'm going to give you, with my really high-quality power graphics, a view of how epistemic iteration works. If you imagine that we are sitting here, let's say, in DSM-3, and that's where we want to go with our diagnoses, and then we might see something like, so I get this right, that's DSM-4, that's DSM-5, that's DSM-6, and bingo, DSM-7. So only if it were that simple. Well, you can applaud, but it's a little premature at this point. Um, so what's important is what's going to make that system work. And I think this is where it's much more useful rather than that simple cartoon. So you need three things in my view. First, 
you have to have at least a moderately stable target. You have to be aiming more or less to the same point, and we'll discuss that. Second, the process of iteration needs to have some stability. Think about the aim. You've got to be aiming in more or less the same way, so you have to have stable rules. And third, the likelihood surface has to be fairly flat. Or I should say it would be sloping in one direction. If you get into what are called in statistics local minima, the system won't work. And I want to describe each of those in a little bit of detail. This originates from a lovely book that I strongly recommend by Hassak Chang called The Inventing Temperature, Measurement, and Scientific Progress. And basically what Chang describes in both history and philosophy was what, how did you start with a thermometer? So imagine you're the first person who wants to measure something. And you get, you might say, let's say you observe that uh, gas expands when it's heated and contracts when it's cooled. And you say, all right, I take a, I take a glass tube, I stick some um, gas in it, um, and I um, take it out on a really cold day. And when it's really cold, I mark it there and I say, oh, that's a zero. And then I wait six months till a really hot day and I mark and that's 100. And then, you know, how do you improve on that? And what's the nobody said, well, I want to use mercury. I don't want to use air. I'm going to got oxygen. Or what happens when the, when the air gets too cold and it doesn't compress? And so what Chang does is explain in a very practical way how the science of inventing temperatures work. And mostly what it did is the models keep getting better. And the epistemic iteration model really derives from that overall concept. He described it as a spiral of improvement. Um, and this is, again, just from a head-on view, what that process looks like. So very, very simple. Okay. So what's the opposite of epistemic iteration? So what worries me, having now been a DSM warrior for a number of, uh, of iterations, is that it is a deep human characteristic to think that you are smarter than your predecessors, and that things they did, you can do better. So I was among the group where one, you know, I was in the post-lithium generation, generous psychiatrists, and when I was a resident, we with glee would take these notes of clinicians much older and wiser than us who would call people schizophrenia and say, oh, those ignorant folks, this person really had bipolar illness, and we would give them lithium trials. And in fact, the joke was that when you were on our unit, if you made one long-distance phone call, that got you a lithium trial. So we were sort of, you know, we were ready for anything, and we made fun of the older generation because we were really up and hip. I think that's a process of, of general human culture. You know, hair goes up and down, beards, you know, pose in one generation rebels against the other, and Kafali Schwarza has modeled that kind of thing. And DSM is much at risk for that sort because I want to come in and make my change, and of course I make a change by trying to argue that the, that the previous generation was really stupid and made, made other problems. I struggled and struggled to try to get an empirical example of this, and I was very pleased when I came up with this uh, title, quote, Three Centuries of Women's Dress Fashions, a Quantitative Analysis. Okay? And I have to quote from this. They note a series of irregular cycles with the periods of maximum length seen in 1641 to 60, 1794, there are also times of short skirts, by far the most striking of which is seen in 1927, think of flappers. And here I love this last quote. I have to quote the authors here, quote, at this time, skirts nearly reach the upper limit of possibility and probably are less definable limits of decency. You're not allowed to read ahead when I'm reading this. So this is what it looks like over time. That's the flappers up there. So they hadn't yet seen the miniskirt. I assume the miniskirt would be maybe even a little bit more on that. So I have actually argued 
with psychiatric nosologists say, all right, you don't want to follow something like epistemic iteration. Is this what you want for DSM? Right? Just each generation is going to rebel against the next. Borderline will be your cool diagnosis. Now this generation, then everything will be back to anxiety diagnosis. Or everything's going to be brain scans one generation, then the next one are going to look at things that are genetic, and then the next one are going to look at neuropsychology. And we're just going to get bouncing around. There'll be no, there's no approximation. You don't center upon anything. And that's, you know, historians might argue about where, where, you, where the Renaissance ends and Reformation begins. Broad ties, even ties, is that what we want for this kind of science? So this is the idea of, of uh, what a random uh, walk is. And of course, you're just chasing something. Every time you move, it's moving, and you're never going to get anywhere. Just, uh, it's random. Okay. So, uh, so let me now pose, is epistemic iteration a viable model for psychiatric illness? When will it clearly not work? First, it'll clearly not work if psychiatric disorders are like fashions or social attitudes. And there is either no stable reality out there, and people certainly have argued that. There's no there there. I can't target it. Temperature, thank goodness, you know, it's random molecular motion. It's a pretty stable thing out there in the world. Or, and this is, I mentioned last time, where I've moved from a very strong realistic perspective, it also works if you take a pragmatic or instrumental view. If you simply say, our job is to develop psychiatric diagnoses that really do a good job at telling you critical information about course and etiology and imaging and others, you don't have to believe that there's something real in quotes out there, but you have to agree on something being stable. But if there's nothing stable out there, it'll automatically fail. And I actually, this, this is a very recent essay in which I delve into this. It's coming out in psychological medicine about trying to struggle with this idea and actually, for me, shifting more from a um, more um, a congruence kind of view um, uh, of truth to more, what you'll see in terms of the article about um, trying to argue for a more modest view of what a, a realistic view of nosology based on a coherence theory of truth. So second, epistemic iteration won't work if the methods used to move the progress process forward dramatically differ over time. And we are at great risk for this in psychiatry. In the temperature story, some scientists used mercury thermometers, others used air thermometers. They weren't the same, but they were highly intercorrelated. So it didn't send things off spiraling. But what would happen if the validating methods, the empirical methods used to try it, changed dramatically over time? So this would, uh, I mean, this is again is such an example in which if your arrow, if your focus changes, you're never going to get where you are. Um, and this is what I described before, which is that, again, trends of what is cool in psychiatry change. So from the first generation, we're so entrenched with imaging and we want everything to deal with a functional MRI. 15 years later, we want everything to be in mind with molecular genetics. 15 years later, it's going to be some new technology. And those are highly uncorrelated then things won't work. The deep question is, how often are these different validating perspectives telling us the same sort of thing? Okay, I'm going to go through this quickly. Um, so the last part, and I think the most profound, is that epistemic iteration will only work if our current diagnoses are more or less in the right ballpark. So what happens if our current views are so deficient of the underlying etiology that we can't get from here to there. This is actually sometimes in, 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 in uh, mathematical theory and iteration is called the box canyon problem. So those of you that used to watch westerns if you were young, you know, when the, when the bad guy rides into a canyon and this posse comes after him and there's just all around him are high walls, he can't get out. 
So if that's going on, so our psychiatric disorders, we can't get to a better solution without coming up over the top of a ridge. What are we going to do? Um, and I think that's probably the, the deepest of the concerns that we have that our current concepts are sufficiently primitive. Let me show you the most simplistic kind of approach to that. So this is the idea of A is stuck within a, a, a local minimum and can't get up down to where he or she really needs to be in the diagnoses. And one approach is you do, and this is exactly what you do in statistical approaches, you do a reboot. You actually just take the starting point, drop it someplace else, and see if it works. So in this case, if we just moved the point A to there, ka-chunk, ka-chunk, we're back down in our message. So this raises the issue about when can you do a reboot. At what point are psychiatric disorders so malfunctional, unable to be improved, and you have to say, we have to wipe the slate clean and start over again? This has been the major debate of the personality disorders within DSM-5. Those of you who know this history, it was an effort to do a reboot, and it failed for a variety of complex reasons. I know the intimate issues about this. Uh, we can talk about it in the discussion section if you want. I think it's a very important problem facing us about trying to understand under what circumstances we need reboots and then how they can be done in a way that, that, is, that is rigorous and brings broad consensus in the field, which certainly did not occur with personality disorders. Okay, so I am now shifting to the uh, second part of the talk, which is really trying to talk much more about the structure of psychiatric science. And here I really just have two projects to go through, this one quickly and then, then, then a second and a moment. So the dappled nature of causes of psychiatric illness. This also came out in 2011. Um, So um, this has been, I think, a very helpful chain in my thinking. Let me describe again. This was also a thought experiment, a little bit like the last one. And here the thought experiment was much more trying to respond to this deep, what I think is dysfunctional structure within psychiatry of how often we consider things divided up into brain versus mind, or we slip into this very simple kind of computer logic about software and hardware. Uh, I am not a fan of this analogy, but I wanted, I wanted to try in a simple-minded way to broadly see whether we could test this cleanly. This began with the following intuition, which is that it is mostly true. I've talked to a few computer experts. It's not completely true. But when your laptop breaks and you call your IT person in, by and large, the differential diagnosis between it's a hardware problem or it's a software problem is very simple. It's almost always one or the other, and of course, the situation is, the solutions are very different. If it's a software problem and your IT person reaches for his soldering gun and opens up your motherboard, you better be worried, right? On the other hand, if it's a, um, a hardware problem and he starts you know, going back into your code and trying to fix things, that isn't going to work as well. It's very seductive. I just think it's quite, quite uh, substantially flawed. The thought model was straightforward. I wanted to see if, in fact, mind-brain systems are like computers, we should simply very easily be able to take the causes of psychiatric disorders and divide them up into those that are basically software-based and those are hardware-based in the same kind of analogy. And would that, in fact, work? That was the simple approach. And I agree that it's, um, uh, it's simple-mindedness. Could we, even with error or slop, broadly divide all the causes of psychiatric disorders into those two concepts? They were either hardware or software. Or were, in fact, they dappled by which I meant sprinkled across many levels of causation. So in this point, 
I really did a a priori review. I reviewed the literature, but not as I said in a moment, in an entirely empirical manner. These are areas and disorders that I knew very well, and I, I as volunteered several times for other people to come after me. I gave myself 100 causal points, and then knowing these literatures, tried to assign them into these various categories from what might be the most reductive here to the sort of highest level here. And I tried to do this for schizophrenia, and I did this for major depression, and I did this for alcohol dependence. And the point only here is first, these causes are highly dispersed, very similar to what we argued before, and I would rigorously defend the empirical quality of these results. I can quote particular studies, the overall magnitude of effects, and there might be some minor areas of debate, but I think most of these are, are really not open to wide interpretation. So that for all three of these disorders, it's highly dappled, but the dappling is quite different. So for example, in, for alcoholism, social, cultural, and political factors are much more important. And for um, major depression, uh, both personality effects and trauma are more important. So the main result of this simple design is each pattern is different. But in each case, you see the dappled nature of the causes across a wide variety of levels. Many limitations to this, we can discuss these. I didn't take into account mediational effects, because obviously some of those higher order effects are going to get mediated through, um, which would make this more complicated. And then I have to start drawing all those path diagrams. I didn't want to go there, but I was really trying to make an illustrative point. OK. So this brings me to the most recent uh, published of these philosophical projects. This came out in the American Journal a couple of months ago. And I want to spend a few more minutes on this and then conclude. Um, again, um, apologies for the hubris of the title. So I began with an empirical project. And in some sense, I was forced to do this by people asking me, well, you showed those a priori diagrams. How really realistic are they? So I set myself, and this was a fairly time-consuming task. I picked 12 journals that were representative across the major subfields of psychiatry. So this included journals like uh, psychiatric epidemiology and molecular uh, uh, psychiatry and all the British Journal of Psychiatry, Psychological Medicine, uh, JAMA Psychiatry, American Journal, Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease, et cetera, that are listed. I tried to be fairly broad in terms of representing uh, a different orientation. And I read through four issues of each of those journals. I had a complex coding system. So here my goal was basically sort of field work to say, OK, what actually is the field publishing? And I classified them into a nomenclature, and then I looked how often were they single level versus actually doing work between levels? So that was the prime task. And after many, many hours, this is what I found. Let's see, the total number was 197 articles. By the way, these were only etiology. So if it was treatment trials, uh, that was not part of it. So these were dealing with the etiology of, of psychiatric illness. So pretty diverse. Uh, not the same shape as what he said before. I wouldn't have expected it, of course. Uh, but what you can see, and what's particularly interesting, I quote this here, of the three most common single predictors, one came from psychology, which is neuropsychology right here. It happened to be actually very, very common. Right? The second most common was individual-specific environment, this one right here, environmental exposures. And the third, as you can see, was systems neuroscience. So we've got really active investigations going on across this wide diversity of levels. Um, so, interestingly, of the 197 studies, about 70% of them examined a single level. And I will comment on why I think that's particularly important. Of the 62 multi-level studies, there were only three major groups of them. 
One, the most common studies that I do look at twin studies, where you look at this latent A and a latent C and a latent E. And although that's multi-level, it's really cheating. Because these are just aggregate statistics. You're not actually looking in a dynamic way about how specific environments or genes interact. Five of them were basically doing the CASPI paradigm of looking at individual genetic variants in environment. And the only area where there was rigorous cross-level collaborations were between imaging studies and neuropsychology, in which people were really designing neuropsychological paradigms, testing them and getting brain circuits involved, and iterating back and forth. That was really the only active area in all of psychiatry we were looking cross-level. So what would I suggest? I suggest that what we already are doing in our leading journals is practicing empirically-based pluralism. And again, to deconstruct what that means, it means that we are willing to look anywhere in which we have rigorous evidence that these disorders relate to risk and that we don't have preconceptions that because it's social, it's got to be soft and that's not real science and the only real science is neuroscience or the only real science is neuropsychopharmacology, um, that we are entirely eclectic as long as you are able to demonstrate strong empirical evidence that causal effectors there. So I, that was the descriptive part. So here is the proscriptive part on which I will end. So I have argued that we could see the task of psychiatric science as having three broadly consecutive paradigms. The first of which is the eclectic effort to clarify risk factors regardless of level with careful attention to causal inference. And I would recommend using this, the manipulationic framework of Woodward. So here is a uh, effort that I did with John Campbell trying to show how attractive interventionist models. This is a form of counterfactualism, those of you familiar with this. It has the lovely properties of being completely agnostic to methods. It works equally well in mind-based work, in brain-based work. It works across levels. It only requires that you make attempts to freeze other causal processes in the world, grab elements to manipulate, and see that something happens to your end result. So it doesn't involve physical causation, a whole additional philosophical scheme. And of course, there may be philosophers here much more deeply read in this complex area of causality. I can tell you, as a working psychiatrist, this is very attractive because it's aggregate, it works across all levels, and it focuses where it should at the problems of causal inference because psychiatrists, often like other social science researchers, are very sloppy about assuming correlations equal causation all the time. And this manipulationist framework forces you starkly to try to do better than that. And this, by the way, is, is Woodward's best book. It's really an interesting read. I mean, it's a little hard in places because philosophers come up with these lovely models of each person shooting a person and who really kills them if they move and hits the apple. And then these most macabre sort of examples of, of uh, how you might be able to kill someone without really meaning to. So they're all of that sort of ilk. I, I, I try, don't analyze that. Result. Um, so in some ways, the goal here would be to populate the causal space, trying to develop as full a range of predictors of psychiatric illness as possible. And so my goal here is a very simple one, which is to be broad-minded but empirically rigorous. And I think that's where an important differentiation might be from the way that Engel's traditional biopsychosocial model gets practiced which is while it is broad-minded, the empirically rigorous part has really been left out. And it's sometimes used, in my view, 
as an excuse for sloppy-mindedness. That is, if we just say that everything is important, that as clinicians we have to consider everything, I think it does it a disservice. Because the fact is, as I showed you in those earlier slides, the, the patterns of risk factors are not the same for all of our disorders. There's some areas that are really not very important. We need to emphasize where the data suggests. So being broad-minded is good, uh, but you have to include the empirically rigorous part. The second goal, and I think this is an area where we are drilling deeply in certain parts, is to clarify mechanisms of illness. So we start out with these individual pockets of knowing these bits. So George Brown spends 25 years of his life documenting how important stressful life events is, and it's beautiful work. But very often investigators, for a variety of reasons, are not incentivized, don't then try to take that work and begin to build it into more important etiological pathways. Um, often this involves tracing pathways across illness, as I talked about last time, often this involves non-additive effects. And this is difficult kind of work, but it is not going to help the field if we stay largely within our individual areas and drill down without trying to develop these into more complex causal pathways. You'd think that we are blind in this area? Absolutely not. There's a whole generation of philosophers of biology, very poorly read in the psychiatric sciences, um, uh, who have written extensively around these kinds of problems. I would say Darden, Bechtel, Craver, Wimsatt are the ones particularly come to mind. And here are a couple of the books that have been most influential to me. The Carden and Darden book, In Search of Mechanisms, Carl Craver's lovely book about explaining the mind, Discovering Complexity, which was a very early work of Bechtel and Richardson. This is William Wimsatt's a lovely, occasionally obscure book. And this is one of Bechtel's series of mental mechanisms. We're not without clear guidance of very thoughtful people looking at complex biological problems. Bechtel goes, one of his uh, books is largely about a history of chemistry, where he said how in the 1880s and 1890s did they work out these cyclic uh, pathways, the Ebden Meyerhoff, the Krebs cycle, those who physicians in the audience have had to memorize multiple times when we get examined. So we really have a substantial philosophical framework that the field of psychiatry has really acted in ignorance of. Uh, I, I very much feel that moving toward the more classic-based, physics-oriented philosophy of science is largely sterile for us. It is the philosophy of biology that is really our natural mate that can provide paradigms that are really quite helpful for us. But there are an important range of barriers. Funding is a critical problem. Research specialization and skepticism of other fields. I've had the personal experience as a psychiatric geneticist of wanting to go in and start working in other areas, and I'm not a member of the club. You know, grant reviews first tend to get turned down. I haven't published 25 articles in this area. Uh, they, in fact, it makes doing this kind of synthetic work more difficult. I think that there is a deep problem within the field that many of these areas, especially as you begin to work across levels, require a level of statistical sophistication. When you think about modeling non-additive effects across levels, and often our research background, our research teams are not well equipped to deal with that sort of statistical complexity. Um, it's just plain difficult because we have these causal loops that we have. So this is not, I'm claiming to be easy work. And it's also hard to judge when the time is right. So let's take an example of Eric Kandel. You know, when he was looking around trying to clarify memory, everyone said, oh, you have to work in the rodent hippocampus. That's where everything is worked. And, and Kandel, with tremendous foresight and wisdom, said that's way too complicated. So he spent his life on the single synapses of the aplesia. And at that point, that was the right answer for him because he had to go down. But you're going down, if you're going to solve problems, you have to come back up. And sort of when in a career, in the development of a science, are times ripe? And my own view is that in many areas, 
we have to be spending time looking up and beginning to develop synthetic models, unless we should have these. We have a field full of these deeply dug holes of individual specialties without someone trying to begin to be integrative and trying to put all these processes together. As I said, Bechtel treats these in a number of ways. This raises very important issues about about a decomposition. So when you start a problem, where do you divvy them up into tractable questions that you can individually answer? And when do those get answered sufficiently where you have to start moving from that one to the next one next door and bringing causal uh, links between them? That's a critical question as our science develops. Lander and Weinberg have given this beautiful quote uh, because systems biology actually describes many of the sorts of themes that I've been talking about. 20th century biology triumphed because of its focus on intensive analysis of individual components of complex biological systems the 21st century discipline will focus increasingly on the study of entire biological systems by attempting to understand how component parts collaborate to create a whole. You can see how sympathetic that is to the kind of picture that I'm trying to create for the future of psychiatric research. Third major paradigm. So I hang around a lot with molecular geneticists, um, and I have gotten a good inculcated sense of what they see their goals as being. And roughly, it's that if they're able to demonstrate they get their 108 or their 150 variants, and they show statistically rigorously that this relates to risk for schizophrenia, they really want to declare victory and head home. As if understanding the down level, the risk is the end of the story. And I get into vigorous arguments with them that this is not right. So the third paradigm that I'm stressing is that we have to, to complete the circle within psychiatric research, go from the biological reductivist mechanisms and bring it back up into mental processes. So that if you tell me, I hold the press conference, that I've discovered the cause of schizophrenia, right? And I show you my 37 genes and the complex network and how it acts with synaptic migration and how neurons developing the second, I mean, I give you the whole biology then I'm going to be in the back of the room. And I raise my hand and say, Dr. X, I know you're thinking about getting a Nobel Prize. Now, how does this explain delusions and hallucinations? And I guarantee you there will be this very awkward silence, because these individuals have never considered that question. And my simple point is the job is not complete for us as a field until we take this lovely biological mechanisms and track it back up. And it's not complete. First, because that's where we're going to learn some things more about etiology and prevention. But our obligation to our patients, and I feel this very deeply. You know, when, when, you, when my, my wife, a family practitioner, has a patient with diabetes for the first time, she sits down and she draws an islet cell and she draws a pancreas and she talks about sugar and she talks about circulation and she draws out for the person so that not everybody gets it the first time, but they come away with a basic understanding of why they got where they were and why the kinds of things they need to do, like watching the sugar at all relates. Our obligation in psychiatry someday, I'm not sure I'll live long enough, is when a patient with schizophrenia comes in, I can take a little diagram. And it's not you know, 37 million uh, neurons. It's giving them a basic explanation of the etiology of delusions and hallucinations because we understand it from the ground floor back up. So that's the third part. And we, in all of the kind of reductionist zealotry, lose those things out. So it's something that I feel personally that we as a field have to, have to be committed to. 
Um, there are already some important examples. So I think some of the work that Frith has done with feed-forward motor systems and delusions of control that Kippur have done with dopamine salience who are making some important inroads, mostly through neuropsychology being the loop between neurobiology on the one hand and expanding understanding on the other. Uh, this again is a paper that I've written, published, I guess, last year that very much looks at this question about how we can, and this is going back to Carl Jasper's idea of explanation and understanding, introducing the idea of explanation-aided understanding, how through advances in neurobiology, both we and our patients can understand from a subjective perspective why these phenomena are arising. So our work is not complete until we conclude that. Okay, so this is really just a summary. I don't think I need to do the time is out. I will end with this quote by Hassan Chang. I think this addresses what's the right word to say. We as a field, by which I mean mental health, not philosophy, have had a long pension of ideologically oriented zealotry in which one group of people are sure that there is, is the right way. And of course, it has been psychoanalysts, and it has been neurochemists, and it has been psychopharmacologists, and it has been molecular geneticists that this is the one way. And I think I've tried to describe to you all the fallacies of that, how that partially arises from our inability to deal with complexity, but it also deals from a fundamental hubris. I think Hassock Chain captures, in my view, very clearly the kind of mature pluralistic science that we want, I want psychiatry to be. I, I quote, I consider what it means for science to be mature and identify humility rather than hubris as the proper basis of maturity. The active realist ideal is not truth or certainty, but a continual and pluralistic pursuit of knowledge. Thank you for your attention. Thank you.